So as we look at the Old Testament um, books this year and get to know God better, we're going to look at the, the overcompassing attribute of him as sovereign God. And I was thinking about an illustration or an analogy or something to help us understand that concept because we hear words and, yeah, holy, you know, righteous, whatever. We can kind of get a handle on some of those words. But sovereignty is a little bit of a one that's kind of out there. Um, maybe some of you have studied it, which is cool because then I think it gives you a deeper understanding and love for God. But when you're going to, when someone is going to make a quilt um, and just have it in their head to make a quilt, we get an idea, we think through the design, we go with the pattern. I personally like the log cabin pattern the best, but there's Jacob's Ladder and all those different things that are out there, so many quilt patterns to do. You get an idea, you get the colors in your mind and stuff like that. You think through it. It's not like you decide, oh, I'm going to make a quilt today, I'll just go get a hunk of material, and then, and then you kind of go as you go. You have to have like a bigger vision of it. And you get the idea, you get the colors, we go to the store, the fabric store, we, through all the fabrics there and the bolts of material, we're looking and making our selection of the colors and pulling them out. And then we go up and we buy our material, bring it home, and then we start to assemble it, hands-on, cutting, sewing, Ironing, so important when you're making a quilt, right? All those things. And if we're accurate in the cutting and the sewing and the ironing, and we're careful, then there's no need for a seam ripper, right? (laughs) If it's perfection, then there are no changes along the way. So God, as a sovereign God... Mean is he is all powerful, independent, not limited by anything or anybody else. And this attribute of sovereignty, if we can just categorize them a little bit different and go with, um, it's like an umbrella attribute of God. It's the, it's the, attribute that magnifies and exalts God in a way that's so powerful and all-encompassing. Let me give you an example. God is also holy, right? He's a holy God. But if he wasn't also a sovereign God, he would only be holy in certain areas, right? He's a righteous God. But if he wasn't sovereign, all-powerful, independent of everything, then he would, and if he had to be connected or dependent on other things, he would only be righteous in some areas. Are you tracking with me on this? So the sovereignty of God is he's all-encompassing, and all these other attributes of him are magnified and and enhanced and, and just explosive because of the sovereignty of God. He is working in everything that happens to bring about his good purpose. With providence of God, everything is under his providing care. It's not like he created and then stepped back and watched things happen. I created, I'm the creator, so there it goes. That's the deism. Deists believe that. 
That's not our God. That's not the God of the Bible. Every single molecule, every single cell that there is, he is in charge of. He governs all things to his purpose. I'm making the quilts. I have an idea. I get the right material. I get the right, you know, sewing and cutting and everything and put it there because the end result, the purpose of my quilt is to have the quilt have the same, the size and the, and what it looks like, the design, the whole purpose of all the things that I'm doing by sewing and, and, and cutting and ironing and stuff, piecing together. The purpose is to make a quilt. I'm the creator of that quilt. So if God is the creator of the world and he's made everything, his purpose is going to happen. So what is the purpose? Everything's being pulled together to his purpose. His purpose is twofold. The redemption of the church and to bring glory to himself. Everything that happens is geared to the purpose of him redeeming his church, his bride, and bringing glory to himself. And God works all things according to the counsel of his word. That's in Ephesians 1.1. Not the will of his creatures. Because if he can change or be told, oh God, I don't like this, can you do this, whatever like that? Then he wouldn't be sovereign over it. It's a hard concept. We're going to work with it through the whole year. And, and, but I want to give you a good idea of the importance of really understanding this attribute. So in Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, it says, all, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. We're so familiar with that verse. God works um, all things together for the good of those who love him. And so we think we can take that and just tell God what we want to do. So that's really not what the verse says, and we'll get into that later. But Isaiah 14.27 says this. The Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. And who will turn it back? God has created and he's made a purpose in the creation and nothing is going to deflect from that. Nobody or nothing. So, Jesus, in coming, his purpose was, he tells us what his purpose was when he's talking to Pilate in John 18. Pilate's asking him, are you a king? And what does Jesus say to him? You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate asks him, what is truth? Jesus, in the garden, not my will, but yours be, be done. He bent his will to the purpose of why he came. Everything he said, everything he did, I, didn't, I don't do anything, I don't say anything, as I've learned it from the Father. It's that purpose of redemption of the church and glory to God. God even manages evil for his purpose. And we look, we can see that, the, the climax of that, the pinnacle of that was at the cross. He went to the cross because evil men put him there at the hands of evil men. But God ordained it or managed that evil to happen 
to display his purpose, the redemption of the church and glory to himself, and the ultimate love of God. So you have this powerful, extremely, I mean, evil was turned on high intensity on that day to kill Christ, to dump on him, to do all that stuff. We'll never have an idea, thank goodness. But it was a demonstration God allowed that to happen, purposed that to happen, to demonstrate the love of God, to manifest his love for us, and to redeem his church. We just got finished studying Acts last year. We found out that the purpose was of the Acts of the Apostle was to spread the gospel, to grow the church. Um, Matthew sixteen eighteen. When Peter, um, Jesus was asking them, who do they say that I am? And Peter acknowledges that Jesus, confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus tells him that, um, I tell you, you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Evil does not overcome the will of God. I want you all to get a sense of comfort in this because we live in a world that's full of evil and it seems like it's just terribly out of control. But even those things that are so evil and bad, God is not the author of them, but he is managing that for his purpose. He's unchanging. In the sovereignty, he's unchanging. Think about this. Think about the seam ripper. I had a plan, a purpose, whatever. It, I, I, I sell them. I've, I've gone through. I actually got a really heavy-duty seam ripper. I, <laughs> anyways, so if you don't need a seam ripper, you've done everything perfectly, you're going to have a beautiful, perfect pro, uh, project. And God is perfect. His plan's going to unfold. So he's not going to change. Because for him to change would mean that he lacked perfection perfection in the first place because truth is absolute i know that's i'm jumping a little bit around with some bridges with that but there's god is the truth and everything else going on are lies and in today's world they're really flipping it around aren't they but the bible tells us that in the end good will be evil and evil will be good we're seeing these things and the more we hear verbiage that is lies the more we listen to that the more we're vulnerable or open to start believing those things because it's a repetitive thing that happens this studying god's word is so important we really have to know in today's world what god's truth says what the truth is out there this is not going to change this is absolute this is perfection So what should our response be to a sovereign God? What should our response be to his divine providence in us? He's caring for us. All the things that happen to us, we're in the palm of his hands, are orchestrated by him. Um, And for those who love God, who have committed to God, who search, search out God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, all of these things will come together for our good and glorify God. Well, the book of Job is such a great book. Job had everything taken away, a lot of suffering, a lot of bad stuff going on with him. His friends weren't helpful. His wife wasn't helpful. No one was helpful. Started to question 
what's going on. He had kind of an opinion of himself or whatever, you know, because he was a pretty righteous guy. Um, So all these questions are happening. When God steps on the scene in chapter 42 and starts answering Job, basically saying, well, Job, where were you when I was creating this? And where were you when this happened? And do you know how, the, do you know how I made this happen? Do you know how I make the hail and storm and collect the cloud? I mean, it's a beautiful passage there. When he starts to talk, I guess 38, chapter 38 and on, he starts questioning. So by the time we get to chapter 42, Job responds to God by saying, I know that you do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Nobody can change that. Job finally realized that. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. We're limited in our understanding. Things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of your ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. How should we respond to this wonder sovereignty of God in humility? In humility. It's natural for us to question things when they're not going right or things are bad or we're suffering or whatever is happening to us. That's the flesh side. It's the human side. That, it happens, but we can't stay there. We've got to move into the spiritual side of God is sovereign. He's got a purpose in this to redeem his church and to glorify himself. So humility comes, and then it's an automatic worship of God with that. And the biggest thing that comes for us in that humility and worship God is is the peace of mind, which is invaluable in today's world. Anxiety is out of control. That God, if God governs all things to his purpose, if this is true, what I just shared with you, I was going to come up with just verses on sovereignty, and there were way, way too many, the whole book. So if it's true that he governs all things to his purpose, then nothing can go wrong. You don't need a seam ripper. You don't need to change it. You don't need to beg him to change it. When we pray, we need to say, God, help me to accept what's going on. Help me to see what my part is in this. That brings great comfort. So whatever happens, God is at work for his good purpose. And we're going to see this in every single book we study this year. So let's talk about this book for a minute here. Because the grass withers and the flowers fades, but the word of God will stand forever, right? It is unchanging. We're glad that you're all here. We have people in this class that have bought a Bible for the first time just to be in our class. We have people in our class that have worn out Bibles because they've studied so hard. But the Word of God is active and alive, so we're always learning, and the times are always changing, so we always need to have his Word. So, the Bible is divided into Old Testament, New Testament. There's four divisions in the Old Testament. The Pentateuch. Penta, five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, written by Moses. Then we have a historical section, which is what we will be studying our books from, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and Esther. 
historical. We're going to dig into that. And the sovereignty of God is going to be very apparent because we're looking at it back in time now to what happened. And we're going to be reading about what it was like for those people to be going through it in that moment. So we have like great seats to see the sovereignty of God work. And that becomes real fun and apparent when we get to Esther. Or, yeah. Um, So that sovereignty is going to be greatly on display. Then we have the third section is poetic books. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastics, and Song of Solomon. The poetic books. Then the rest of them are prophetic books. Major and minor prophets. And we'll be studying Daniel, which is one of the major prophets. And again, with the sovereignty of God, we'll be able to see what was going on with Daniel back then. He's going to talk about what's going to happen that we haven't reached yet either. To give us great confidence and comfort to know that. So, Joshua is what we would consider a bridge book. It's a bridge between the Pentateuch and Moses, and the law, and and God pulling his people together, and training them, and getting them going, and they were wandering through the the desert, and everything, and now it's come to a point where they're going to go into the promised land. Transition book. Transition from the patriarchal age, okay, to the age of being settled, and occupying the promised land. So it took 500 years from the promise to Abraham, to Joshua, going over, and and occupying the land. A fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham wasn't 500 years to, to be fulfilled. Judges and Ruth, they are two books that the events occur at the same time in history. So we'll be able to see two different contrasts there. Those books are filled with graphic violence and deceit and illicit sex and selfishness and Hey, taking off the headlines today, aren't they, right? Pretty much human nature, a godless human nature. Being able to see the judgment side of God, the righteous side of God. And then Esther um, is the account of God, the Jewish people living in exile in Persia. We see the wisdom, we see the providence of God there, the power for him to preserve his people In the book of Esther, you may know this, God isn't even mentioned. God's alluded to, but God isn't mentioned. But there's an overwhelming knowledge that God is actively involved in what's going on there in the book of Esther. And it's (laughs) incredible, phenomenal reversals of fortune that only... Only the, the great hand of God being in there and playing with stuff and doing things would, would even be able to make it happen. And Daniel, like I said, he's going to be, he's in exile in Babylon. And it's allowing us to see God's control in all human events, past and future. And it's also going to let us know how to live in a time of ungodliness like we have today. So we're going to see through our study, no matter what happens, God is at work for his good purpose. So I'm going to wrap it up here with just wetting our whistle with Joshua to get you into um, your study of uh, that book when you go home. And I'm probably going to be done 
a little early. Um, So Joshua is the son of Nun. His name means Yahweh is salvation. The name Jesus is a derivative from Joshua from the Greek Old Testament. So there's a connection there with this man Joshua. We first hear about Joshua back in Exodus 17.9 when Moses was commissioned, uh, had commissioned him to lead a battle against the Amalekites. So there's, they're wandering around in the desert and stuff, and things are going on, and it's, they're, they're battling, and God's getting his people ready to, to be in the land. I mean, they were just a bunch of, they weren't warriors, really. They were just shepherds and, you know, herd, herders and farmers and stuff like that. And so they were going to go into the promised land that, they, you know, there were giants in there, um, so he's training them, he's, you know, teaching them, he's doing things. And so Moses assigns Joshua to go ahead and lead one of these battles. In Exodus 24 and in Numbers 11, we start to see Joshua is referred to as Moses' assistant. So he's starting to rise up in his leadership there um, in the, throughout the Pentateuch. Numbers 13 um, his name shows up again when they're looking at the promised land. They're getting ready to go in. They're wandering, whatever their, you know, their craziness is happening. Moses is getting older. They've got to make their, prepare for war to go in there. So they take one person from every tribe, 12 tribes, to go in um, to the land. Um, what does it say about them? From each tribe of your father, send one man, a uh, chief among them. So somebody who's chief among each tribe, someone who's a leader that demonstrates, you know, those kind of qualities. So Joshua was chosen for that. He's chosen for that, and Caleb's chosen for that, and all the other ten are chosen for that. And we see that in verse thir- chapter 13, that at, this is the point where he's identified as uh, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, the son of Nun, this is where Moses changes his name to Joshua. So they go in, the 12 tribes go in, or the 12 men go in, and they come back, and what do they report? Oh, the land's great. It's great food and fruit and all this kind of stuff, and it's just, it is, it's the promised land, but we have a problem. The problem is there's all these bad people over there, and they're really, really big. And 10 of these spies were like basically saying, uh, we can't do this, you know. We'd be better off going back to Egypt. There's just no way we're going to handle this, okay? And they get the people all in this panic to do this. But Caleb and Joshua see it in a different way. Um, And they start saying, you know, know, we, we don't need to do this. Wait a minute, time out, you guys. Caleb, that says he was a quiet person, he quieted the people down, so he quieted the people down, and he says, let us go up and up, let's occupy it. We are all well able to overcome it. And then the man who had gone with them, the other ten, said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than us. So they brought the people of Israel in a bad report of the land, and then they spied, that they spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are great in height, and there was Nephilim, and it was just, they seemed like grass, we were grasshoppers among them. 
And Numbers 14 says, and then all the congregation raised a loud cry. And there were a million people here. I mean, this is a big group of people that are getting raveled up. The whole congregation began to grumble again to Moses and Aaron. That was their typical thing. And they said, would that, would we, that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we have died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron, they fall on their faces before the assembly and just, you know, all this emotional stuff going on. Everything seems to be out of control. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of um, Jephon, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we have passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear. What great words. And what happens in verse 10? And then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. They didn't want to hear it. But God, here's another but God. I love when those pop up. It's not really but God, but it says, But the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And talks to Moses, and then they all go in. And he assigns Caleb, and we get Joshua to go in. Joshua is commissioned to lead the people in. In Deuteronomy 31, 23, we see that. Um, And the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. So you can kind of get a picture of where we're going in with Joshua, the book of Joshua. We've got this huge group of people that are just shaken in their knees, not really willing to go, um, wanting to go back to, you know, back into captivity, forgetting about the promises of God. And we have Joshua and Caleb. And others that were starting to come along with God say, no, we can do this. We're going to do what? Trust in God and his purpose from his promise to Abraham 500 years earlier was that we would come into this land. This was our land and everything else looked like, seemed like, smelled like, whatever was going on, like it wasn't possible. But he does, he trusts God, be strong and courageous. Joshua 1, which we're going to study this week, come back and talk about it, in verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for you, Joshua, shall cause his people to inherit the land that I swore to your fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to the will of the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, 
that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and, it's a commandment, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And that is exactly what Joshua did through this book. So when we get to the end of the book in chapter 24, in verse 14, Joshua is 90 years old. And he is telling the next generation, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." So, Joshua was a brilliant soldier, extraordinary military commander of all time. He directed the Jewish people in their conquest of Canaan for seven years. He did. He got all those big, great fortresses, subdued them, and all the cities of the land were subdued. All the people needed to do was clean it up. When we get to Judges, we'll find out they didn't do that. Okay? So he conquered it. He subdued those fortresses. He's led the people in a renewed covenant with God. So he was a man that did not turn from the left or to the right and follow the word of God because he believed in his heart that God's purpose was for his good and, and that nothing, nothing can change that. So whatever happens, God is at work for his good. And for ours, because we love God. I don't know about you guys, but as I started, I hope, my prayer is that as we really start to understand that wonderful truth that God cares and is in control of every single aspect of our lives, whether we lose our keys or find our keys or what happens, right? whether it's raining or whatever's going on, his hand's in everything. And we see today in the world as they try to get rid of God or try to ignore God or try to be God or the, the foolish things that they attempt to do or tell us um, is just... It's just not going to happen. It's just all going to fall apart. So we stay true to it. We are people of the truth. We love the truth, and we study the truth. God's plans and purpose will unfold. And as we are obedient to his word, our lives, too, will be successful and peaceful when we believe and trust in his unhindered care for us.